UX Podcast Episode 171. You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Per Axbom. With listeners in 172 countries, from Mexico to Angola. 172, Per. That's, next time it's going to be fun, because this is a, episode 171. Oh, so we'll have the same number of countries as the episode Perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. Exciting things await. Unless another country just adds themselves, just to spite us. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're talking to Eric Rice, uh, an American business and information architecture theorist, content strategist, consultant, and author known for his work in the field of information architecture. He is the CEO of Fat Ducks Copenhagen as well as the CEO of Fat Ducks Group. Yeah, and Eric was the um, chair of the EuroIA conference um, from its beginning in 2005 until 2014 when he handed it over to a, a, a rotating panel of of chair people um he is um uh, well we talked to him about um a lot of the challenges we face as an industry and, and get into really maybe how we can su- survive it i actually have your usable usability book in my office you do. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's a good paperweight. Yeah. People well, love it for it, that. It is fantastic. Well, and also for propping up monitors. That's good. I f- I mean, it's also good, it's also good um, office book. I mean, it's a great read. But it also, I like having it around because there's, there's aspects of that book that I think um, people who visit me and sit there, they can actually pick up and, and just open it up and have a little read. And, and something, these little light bulbs come up. I'm, gl- I'm glad you said that because I, you know, I was approached by the publisher and they said, well, we want a book on usability. And we want you to write it. I said, well, I'm not really a usability guy. I mean, not that I don't know anything about it, but that wasn't really my specialty. They said, no, 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 no. Everybody else has a usability book. We need one in our portfolio. We want you to write it. I said, well, I don't want to write a usability book. Hmm. I said, no, 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 Eric, you've got to write a usability book. I said, listen, what you ought to do is write a book on user experience. And I would love to write that book. No, 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 we don't want that. So uh, <coughs> I wrote a book on user experience, and they got to put usability in the title, and everybody's happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is in many ways, is kind of what we do, isn't it? It's the, the, the mixing, the blending and mixing of things, w- listening to, to what people say they want, and then interpreting it, understanding it, and presenting something that actually does the job anyway. Yeah, no, it's sold very well, and it's out in four languages now, so uh, I oh. assume that <laughs> people are getting something out of it. And as you said, James, you know, the whole idea was to do a book for people who didn't necessarily have a background in this, but to get them to start paying attention to what was happening around them and how they interacted with devices or with servers at restaurants and so on. It's service design, it's... it's traditional website usability. It's a lot of different things. But you don't have to be an expert. This was as much for the project managers or anybody mm-hmm. who's on the team so that they can make a more more valuable contribution mm-hmm. rather than the usability guru coming in and say, well, we did our testing and mm-hmm. this is what we found out. Mm-hmm. But when you say, you, I mean, you, you wanted to write a book within user experience rather than usability, I mean, how do you view uh, user experience? What are the boundaries of that uh, of that subject? Because that's something we argue so much about in the industry, I think, because some clients even see graphic design as UX. 
Well, I think it is. Mm -hmm. I, the, I, I don't think that any of us can truly call ourselves UX designers, although that's a, certainly a convenient title. Uh, I think I very much see user experience as being this, this great umbrella that covers a, a multitude of disciplines. And what we've seen in recent years is that uh, people are gravitating from one area to the other and have latched on to UX as a buzzword and they say, oh, now I'm a UX designer. And they maybe are, or at least some part of U uh, UX, but certainly information architecture and interaction design and service design, all of these things come under the canopy, search engine optimization. The story I like to tell <coughs> is, uh, I like Bible stories. Bible stories are really, really good because they, they, they tell you an awful lot about human nature. And the one I like is from the Gospels according to John. Now, I'm not a very religious person, mind you. I, I'm, I'm just, just taking this as a good story. Mm. But so John explains, well, <coughs> so Jesus shows up at the wedding in Cana, and he converts six vats of water into wine. Now, you have to be very careful. This is, wasn't for the guests. This was to convince his, true, his disciples that he was the true Messiah. Now, as far as I'm concerned, you know, any Messiah that chooses to create alcohol is their first miracle. You know, he's, he's got a plus in my book. But don't tell me they didn't serve it at the wedding, too. Yeah, that is user experience. And it has absolutely nothing to do whether it's on screen or not. I think that that is another problem that our industry is facing, that mm. people think, well, you know, if pixels aren't involved, then it's not UX. Mm. And that's, I, I don't think that that's true at all. And ultimately limits our ability to get through to companies who generally have a broader view of things than just, oh, well, we have a website or we have an app. Mm. I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree <coughs> with that. Uh, well, SEO, that, a while back, that became something that the C-suite understood. Um, they recognized the phrase. Um, and UX, I think, has been an enabler. And, and we've actually, they're starting to hear that phrase and they've, they've heard of UX now. They don't know necessarily what it means, what it in involves, but there's been a, a door opened. And I, I, I see that being good for us. It has enabled us to do a lot of good work, but it's destroying us at the same time. It is, because I think it, the people are latching onto it as a buzzword. You know, you have mediocre WordPress designers who say, oh, now we're a UX company because that's cooler than, uh, you know, I do websites in my bedroom after I get home from work. Uh, because people don't truly understand what UX is or have a very narrow view of it then uh, there is a lot of confusion on the top levels. And uh, one of the problems I see is that many of the de definitions we, we have are extremely academic and not particularly actionable. And so you say all these things, well, happy customers buy more. Uh, okay, yeah, I kind of get that. But what do you actually do as a UX designer? And my company, a long time ago, came up with a very simple and very actionable de definition that is much more tactical than the more grandiose things. And this isn't to say that any of these academic descriptions are wrong. They're not. They're very good and they're very smart people who have thought this through. But I see user experience as the sum impression left after a series of interactions. And there are interactions that uh, you can control in some way. There are interactions that you need to acknowledge uh, okay it's gray outside in Stockholm today it may rain can't stop it from raining but then I can reduce negative interactions by saying all right I'll go get my umbrella before I go out this evening mm -hmm. 
And most important of all, you need to uh, examine the journey between these different touch points or interactions or whatever you want to call them. And that part of the customer journey, people don't talk about a lot. They talk about the individual interactions. And I thought it was very well said by our keynote today, Stephanie Hughes, who's an architect in the built world, who said, well, you can't really design an interaction. I could argue with her on some of this, but, but I understand her point, and it is true. We can, uh, we can certainly choreograph the interactions. She says they architect interactions. We can't necessarily control that interaction 100%, and therefore it can't truly be designed. Mm. Uh, you know, you can argue with that too. But mm. my point is, if you have actually looked at these interactions, you know, what do we have in the customer journey, or what are people doing? And you can be as granular as you want. If you're just designing a website, then you can look at actual clicks and site maps and all this kind of stuff. If you're doing service design, uh, well, maybe you're looking at a period of a couple of hours in a store, or a couple of days at a hotel, or a half a year during a long sales process for a complicated thing. You need to start grouping all these interactions because you can't do everything equally well. And so uh, we've developed a very simple model. It's simply a cross, uh, uh, you know, a double, a two-axis, four-quadrant graph. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And at the top, is a, this is stuff that we can do something about. These are interactions we can control. Stuff at the bottom. These are things that we can't control. If you look over on the right and say, this is stuff that's actually important to the business model, and all the stuff on the left, screw it. Hmm. And if you are not doing things in the upper right quadrant, things that you can control that are important to the business, then uh, <laughs> you're wasting somebody's time and you're certainly wasting a, mm. lot, of, mm. Uh, mm. a lot of money. So. That's something that the business community has understood, and I think it's part of the reason that we've been mm -hmm. successful in explaining user experiences we practice it at my mm -hmm. company. Mm. It's interesting when you say it's important for the business, because something that we talk a lot about these days in UX is the ethics of design and uh, the impact of what we're doing, because we're actually building the future, in a sense. And so things happen along the way that perhaps hurt people even though they are profitable. Uh, how, how are we as designers responsible for, for countering that and, and perhaps looking beyond what is just the business, business model, but just also in the interest of the people? It's ultimately not in a business's interest, not long-term mm. interest, to, to treat their consumers as consumables. Mm. And that's kind of what they're doing by collecting personal data and so on. A couple of weeks ago, I was privileged enough to be part of 150 people that were sequestered for 48 hours, and we wrote something called the Cop Copenhagen Letter on mm, Tech. Yes, yes. And um, I signed it. I signed it. And too. you signed it. Well, yeah, that's it good. I signed it as well. I'm not quite sure how this happened, but when the letter came along for me to sign, the only <laughs> spot on the paper was where John Hancock has his big signature on the Declaration of Independence. So there I am sitting right in the middle. I was very proud to have been part of that process. Mm. There were, I mean, there were a lot of people that dropped out along the way, but we were still a sort of a core group of about 50 people who hashed this out. And uh, we did say, look, we have a lot of power as people who understand technology, and we can use it for good or we can use it for evil, and we have a responsibility to create products that we would want our loved ones to use. Mm. Uh, we do not think that it is in the long-term interest of business to, tr to treat their customers as 
consumable goods or or research objects. Now, here we are sitting in Sweden. One of the most innovative companies in the world is Swedish, and that is Volvo. They invented the three-point uh, 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 safety harness mm -hmm. in 1957. Mm -hmm. Well, my God, it took 30 years before we started to see these in, car, in, in cars. Mm -hmm. And of course, there was a lot of bitching from the Americans. Says, "Well, I don't like, I don't want to be controlled in that way." Uh, and so people mm -hmm. found all kinds of hacks so that they didn't have to wear their seatbelt. I mean, if they want to be stupid and kill themselves in, in accidents, I'm thinking, well, maybe that's, you know, another form of natural selection. But back in the early '90s, Per Gudenhammer, who was the CEO announced, look, Volvo is now done using organic solvents to clean uh, metal parts. We're not going to use organic solvents in, uh, in the paints and, and other processes in creating these automobiles. And you know, he was sort of hailed as, oh, you know, the first of the, the green uh, manufacturers. But there were a lot of manufacturers, and some of them were my clients, that, well, you know, that's nonsense and that's never going to work. But the truth is... Volvo did very well by making these decisions because even though they weren't mandated by law at that time, when they did come along, Vol Volvo didn't have to change a thing. Mm. They were thinking sustainability long before the rest of the industry. And I think that that's a really, really interesting development and something that other business leaders should be thinking about, that maybe doing good can also be profitable. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, you can see how not just um, that we're reaching that point of maturity as an industry where we're, we're reflecting on it and doing things like the Copenhagen letter, but also how um, there's more and more um, mainstream reports into um, addiction to gambling sites or kind of screen use, the effect of you know using children using screens or or how society elections. Mm. I mean, there's a lot more of this uh, um, insight and data bubbling up to the surface and being aware of, and I, th I, I suspect a lot of companies, a lot of industries are going to be regulated quite heavily in the near future. Oh, I think so too. It's interesting you mentioned addiction because that was one of the things that we specifically discussed in the Copenhagen letter. Mm. Uh, we as technologists and as designers do not feel that it's ethically correct to consciously produce products that are designed to addict. Now, we can't stop addiction. I mean, if people mm. want to play a game that and feel a, a compulsion to play this game mm -hmm. every day. We can't stop that. But if we are actually creating a game that is encouraging addiction, mm. then we're probably doing something wrong. But say we are unconsciously des uh, designing it, and then we realize afterwards that, <coughs> oh my God, this creates addiction. Then do we have a responsibility to pull it back? Well, there, there, there's mm. a degree of latency there. Mm -hmm. I think there a lot of the tech community doesn't really think through the ultimate long-term uh, 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 effects yeah. of the things that they do, and hope hopefully things like the Copenhagen letter will inspire people to 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 think twice about wha what they're doing and to sometimes question the motives of the people who are hiring them. Now, all right, a lot of the, those of us who sign the letter are probably you know get out and get ostracized by some part of the community, either the business community mm -hmm. or somebody else. Uh, and I kind of don't care. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm 63 years old, and my wife and I live comfortably, so I'm not particularly worried about mm. getting fired. I've fired more clients than clients mm. have fired me. Mm. I, for the younger designers, mm. this may be an issue. I know that there are mm. a couple of people who say, well, no, I can't sign that because uh, you know, my, my, my employer wouldn't like that. And so, well, 
okay, fine. Uh, I want to tell this person, maybe you should think about finding another employer. Yeah. Yeah. Because ultimately, I mean, I think we all agree, mm. yeah, we want world peace and to end hunger and we want to make, make the world better. But uh, on a micro level, basically, we want to know that our time on Earth has been spent in some kind of a productive way and that maybe we left the world a little better than it was when we came in. And mm. these are the ty types of values that we try to teach our children. And children le learn by example. And so maybe we need to be setting a better example. So let's you know work for companies mm. that do have uh, a higher ethical code. And I'm not talking about just some stupid code of conduct that they've stuck on their website, but, but companies that you know truly live up to the ethical norms that they, they, they purport to have. Mm. I do wonder as well about how um, with, with um, methods such as lean or the way that um, lean and agile and um, those kind of methods, the way that are um, applied in our industry, encourages quickness in, in doing things fast, you know, without thinking, without, without reflection, without kind of realizing the, f the full implications maybe because you haven't, you haven't designed in any time to deal with that. Kind right. Of thing. I, I, I was at uh, Dan Brown's uh, research or discoverability workshop this morning, and he talked about programming in or planning in time for noodling. Noodling. Uh, is, uh, yeah. a, 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 a noodle, uh, use your noodle. That's American slang for use your bread, mm -hmm. brain. So if you're noodling, that means you're thinking about something. And uh, he's absolutely right. We sometimes don't give ourselves enough time. When I was working in advertising, it took a lot out of me to write an annual report or a corporate brochure or whatever. And my employer had sort of booked me in for four major projects within the space of four weeks. Now, in terms of the timing and the budgets, four weeks was what it was going to need. But I had absolutely no time to recharge my batteries. And it was a very, very difficult time to get through all four of these projects. I think that we do need time to think. We need to have time to go for a walk, and we do need to have time to go and take a swim or, mm. or cook a nice meal for our family or whatever we do. Read some fiction. My God, you know, I'm so tired <laughs> of people here mm. telling me about all the tech books they've read. Mm. You know, when was the last time anybody read poetry by Baudelaire? Or, mm. you know. Everybody's talking about, yeah, we need to teach kids programming in schools now. And I'm, I'm thinking, when everybody says that uh, today, I actually respond, well, let's teach them reading poetry as well, because you need that aspect, of course, also. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'll tell you, mm -hmm. you know, the, best <laughs> the best programmers I know are people who are pretty musical. They play instruments, they read, they write poetry. I mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that... You know, if you ask people who have never talked to, to a dev, you know, what this person is, they're all very geeky and they're weird and they live under parked cars someplace and then you sort of <laughs> come out and then there's mm. lots of cold pizza mm. and warm Coca-Cola. Mm. That's not the way the tech community is at mm. all. Yeah. Uh, but we're not very good at communicating this. I think w another one of the problems that our industry faces in general, not only is are we not being very clear about what user experience is, but we are so eager to be honest and transparent that every damn sentence starts with it depends and whatever. <laughs> Come on, it depends is an extra click in the verbal click stream as far as I'm concerned. Of course, everything depends. But we're so eager for this transparency and honesty that I, I think that we actually make a lot of potential clients uncomfortable. If you talk to somebody from advertising, 
uh, I don't I don't know mm. how how popular Mad Men was in in Sweden, but you've got Don Draper who comes in there all cool and uh, says, yeah, just give me a ton of money and I'm going to make it all wonderful. Mm. And they say, uh, no, I'll save that. I'm not, I'm not going to put the rest of my <laughs> sentence on tape. <laughs> has to do with, and you can sleep with my mm. secretary too, but that was advertising back in the 60s. But that is very comfor- uh, comforting. You, uh, you know, if I deliver my car for servicing, you know, I don't want him to trot out his socket tool mm. shit and look at what I've got in mm. these... No, I said, can I pick the car up at 5 o'clock mm. and is it going to run? Mm. That's really all I need to know. And that's what Don Draper is very good at doing. And the advertising account executives are very good at sort of zeroing in on what is that pain point for the client and solving that. Uh, I think this is also why they're generally better mm. on strategic work than, for example, a lot of the de- dev houses. The dev houses? No, no, no. We're going to talk about UX and AI and blah, 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 and the cloud and... Uh, uh, it gets very confusing because mostly the clients have never heard these terms before. Or if they have, they've either had them explained by somebody who didn't understand them or mm-hmm. they didn't understand the explanation they got. Plus there are 10 more exp- uh, acronyms or whatever mm-hmm. that or, or, or abbreviations that they've never mm-hmm. heard of before. And I think that, that makes them very uncomfortable. I really like that message, uh, actually taking responsibility for communicating in a coherent and <laughs> not just hiding behind it depends. And I think that's something that we as designers need to hear more. Well, that mm. certainly is our failing, I think, yeah. uh, both in terms of information mm. architecture, but mm. in, in more general terms, in terms of user experience. And here again, I'm. this goes from everything from graphic design to SEO to basic code. Yeah. I, we're, not, we're not communicating it very well. We're trying to be honest and transparent, and I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Mm. Uh, the The other thing is that, you know, before we started the interview, James, I think you asked, well, you know, so what's the difference between the state of UX in the United States and in Europe? And, uh, you know, despite my American accent, uh, I am, in fact, a German citizen. I live in Copenhagen, Denmark, mm-hmm. uh, and have lived there for 41 years. Mm. So I... I, I, I feel that I kind of understand what, what's been going on on, uh, on this side of the pond. And what I can say is that when I talk to clients in the United States, I hear a lot of really strange definitions of user experience. And you'd think that these were carved in stone. And I'd say, no, no, this is the way it is. Or you get some kid fresh out of school with a with a... I mean, the ink is barely dry on their master's degree, and they've been reading the books that we others have been writing, and they think, well, you know, we read these books, so we're real smart. Mm. They're, they don't have the empirical experience to solve problems in, in the same way that those of us who have been around for a while can't. So there are, there are a lot of preconceptions in the United States that I don't necessarily see in Europe. So you can say, well, all right, Europe is backwards because... You know, we haven't had a common vocabulary. You know, if you talk to the French, you know, we can argue for hours about what we even call user experience or information architecture. Mm. And in France, you know, you're not supposed to use words that are adopted from other languages. You need right. to mm. invent a word mm. in French. Mm. <coughs> and that's fine, and I think it's great for the preservation of the language, but it does make it very difficult in terms of uh, creating a common vocabulary. And thank goodness, you know, unlike, say, 30 years ago where you almost had to apologize for speaking English, 
Today, we all have our national language. Mine is Danish. Mm -hmm. My international language is English. Mm -hmm. And if you don't speak the local language, you speak English, and mm -hmm. nobody makes makes any mm. two bones about it, to yeah. use an American idiom. And I think that that's helping us create a common vocabulary. And because we have smaller conferences, such as EuroIA, which is, ac this is actually the largest one with 300 people. For years, when I was chair, uh, we capped it at 200 because we wanted people to create a network. Mm -hmm. And it was very important that there were long breaks and people got to talk. And when we started 13 years ago, there were 100 people that met in Belgium who had never met each other. Mm. Yeah. And now we've got two of them on stage now who have been bosom buddies for 13 years mm. uh, who are up uh, presenting about service design. That's nice. I'm very, very pleased to see all these relationships. And that's helping us at least consolidate the message. It's not quite as diverse as some of the stuff that I see coming from the United States, which is very categorical often. And I'm not sure. I'm not, not sure they're as advanced as they'd like to think they are. <laughs> I apologize to the Americans out there. You know, <laughs> you're you're good people. Your heart is in well, the right I place. Uh, it's a generalization. So I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's a it's, it's a, a gross generalization. Exactly. So yeah, and, and but it's always interesting because it's something <laughs> we tend to think about. I mean, we're so influenced by the states in Europe. We look to. I mean. Adaptive path was, uh, I mean, the ones we were looking to for answers back in the day. But now, and now perhaps we're moving more onwards in our by our own. Adaptive path mm -hmm. did, did wonderful yeah. work. Uh, Frog did mm -hmm. wonderful work. Mm -hmm. or, or they they do wonderful work. Yeah. There are there are a lot of good agencies mm -hmm. out there, mm -hmm. and then there are an awful lot of agencies that are closing, mm -hmm. you know, almost daily mm -hmm. because they are basically you know small WordPress shops that don't truly understand it, and suddenly mm -hmm. they find out that they've bitten off more than they can chew. Mm -hmm. They they don't really understand enough about user experience to make it valuable to, uh, they're to their customers. Yeah, they're off-the-shelf factories rather mm -hmm. than um, designers. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, let's find a template that kind of fits. Yeah. <laughs> we'll change a couple of colors. Yeah. Thank you so much for sitting down with us, Eric. This is excellent conversation. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Thinking back and, and reflecting also on, on Eric's seatbelt story, the Volvo cars uh, uh, seatbelt. I mean, yes, it's really important for a UXer, and we always say this, it's really important for the UXers to understand how you contribute to business value, and that's how you prioritize. But I think you also need to understand that you need to argue your case sometimes, even, even to business-minded people, because there's often a clash between short-term and long-term goals. So while conversions, clicks, and, and time on the site will benefit a business in the short term, it can harm it in the in the long term because people get upset and you lose reputation and trust and stuff like that. And so I, I would argue that UXs must think more about the long term and the sustainability, which was the seatbelt story said that, well, Volvo stayed ahead of the curve. They thought about how people could get hurt. They invented the seatbelt and then they were ahead of the, the entire car industry for for many years because they did that before everyone else, before the regulation even came. And we've, I mean, uh, the, the way that we've, talked about this in the past Melissa Perry was one of the ones that brought this up with us that um, in respect to prioritizing a backlog um, it's kind of you you take impact on users and uh, multiply it by the uh, value to the business and that's then gives you a value yeah. which you can use to prioritize your backlog but we could we could potentially thinking of a concrete way to help people out there with this because um, it's not easy if you're sat there and you're asked to to improve the the you know the click-through ratio or whatever of a button or a conversion rate of a, of, a, of a particular transaction path then you know that's that's an awkward situation as a 
interaction designer or as a UX or whatever we've called ourselves. Um, so if we then if we then take value um, for business, if, mm. if we take everything we're working on, if a fe- if it's a feature or a, a, a particular clump of research or whatever the the object, and we say okay, um, let's write down. Um, values for business, both long-term and short-term. And let's also write down um, impact um, to user, to the user, to the, to the customer, um, short-term and long-term. So you've, mm. you've, you've, got, you've got something for both of those things on both sides to help you build up a better picture and perhaps help you communicate better um, the value or the risk um, to your managers or to your, your, the business side of, of your organization. Exactly. It's the impact risk assessment, really. Uh, and what it helps you do is, is, like, say you have five options and you're using this tool to, to evaluate how good are they. And the, the topmost options, they convert a lot more than the other options. Uh, so people will buy more. You can, the A-B tests show that. But at the same time, you're looking at the impact to the user and you're realizing, well, they could potentially get hurt because they will do something that it w- they didn't expect or something will happen that they may not realize will, will hurt them in, in the long term. Uh, and so you, you choose the third option of the, of the five, uh, the third most converting option, because you think about sustainability, you think about the long-term effect. Yeah. This is, I really, I really actually, the more I think about this now, the more I like it, because we would normally um, base our work on usability testing. You know, what mm. tests well with users? And that's then um, purely interaction design most of the time, like someone who's managed to get through a series of a sequence of, of interactions. Um, and then w- we've got um, A-B testing, where it's pure numbers. How many people have kind of um, jumped through the hoops to get to the other side on, on mass? Um, mm. And this, though, there becomes a, a, another dimension to it, a really nice dimension that we can say, okay, this is, the, this is absolutely the most usable um, you know the highest usability of the options. This is absolutely mm. the 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 highest converting of the options. But when we add the long term impact um, for users and business, mm. this is the one that actually carries us over the line. Exactly, and and what you said there, long term impact for users and business, because you have to realize that if it hurts users, it will hurt the business in the long mm. term because they will leave. And it might be the case that you do need to implement mm. one of the short term solutions with a higher short-term value because mm. of other of, of, of other business considerations such as as, as revenue you might need mm. you might need revenue sooner in order to finance revenue longer in the future so right but then at least you're aware of what you're doing yes and you've exactly. also got the 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 plan is there for implementing mm. the next one along which does actually have mm. the longer the higher longer term benefit so you've you're yeah. effectively you're writing a business plan <laughs> yes Exactly. Which, which, which is actually <laughs> now this is interesting itself. That mm. you know when we when we talk about um, UX and, and Eric did say at the beginning of the interview about um, you know it, it's a canopy. We, we've talked about this too. The UX is a canopy expression. It's not really it's not really a, a, an occupation in itself. Um, but um, but what, when you're doing interaction design or, or you're doing you're doing even graphic design stuff at the at the interface level of of, of UX, um, that's that's one thing but um to be able to do a really good job or and even to be able to say no to particular jobs if you're if you're mm-hmm. evaluating companies and and their you know their their stance and how well they live up to the what they say they uh, live up to um you need to be kind of more of a of a of a business counselor 
Uh, someone who's someone who's willing to probe the business and and find out the the what they're really working towards. Yeah, exactly. And that's not always obvious. Um, mm. I think me and you, in, when I'm doing workshops, particularly with analytics, that you know, I, I I get asked questions like, "Well, what you know, what reports should we do for the for the organisation?" So, well, why, why do we even need to do reports? What, well, because the, the the business have asked for the reports. Well, why? Why did they want them? We don't know. And you know, <laughs> you very quickly get to that. Well, we don't really know why we're doing what we're doing, yeah. um, but we do it. So it also encourages you, uh, like we were talking about as well, to slow down, to reflect, to think about the different possibilities of the work you're doing. Uh, and we come across that a lot now, that just that act of just having, a, I don't know, a wind down, uh, making sure that you do something else, not just design. Yeah, exactly. We've mm. got to, I think, we're becoming more and more aware i think of how how small our worlds are it's kind of interesting how we went from not realizing our worlds were small to thinking we have really really big worlds with social media and you know connections all over the world to then suddenly realizing oh it's still quite a little place we live in and yeah. and you know for us to for us to do a good job at designing you've got to have um i think at least an openness for for how things are um and and that you get through experience. You get through basically trying other things, trying something new, reading something different. Yes, exactly. Breaking out of the mold. Uh, I read a lot of novels now. I've stopped reading all these business books because I realized I need other impressions. I need to build my empathy bank, understand other things. Mm. <laughs> or at least maybe not just build your empathy bank, but also just keep your mind open. If you've enjoyed listening to UX Podcast, then please Add us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you like listening. Show notes and full archive of past shows you can find on uxpodcast.com. I'm Pat Axbom. And I'm James Royal Lawson. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Autumn. Now colder shadows. Who'll turn back the clock? Goodbye, bright summer's brief to lively sport. The squirrel drops its acorn with a shock. Cord wood reverberates in my cobbled court. Winter has entered in my citadel. Hate, anger, fear, forced work like splitting rock. And like the sun born to its northern hell, my heart's no more than a red frozen block. Shaking, I listen for the wood to fall. Building a scaffold makes no deafer sound. Each heartbeat knocks my body to the ground, like a slow battering ram crumbling a wall. I think this is the season's funeral. Someone is nailing a coffin hurriedly. For whom? Yesterday summer, today fall. The steady progress sounds like a goodbye. <laughs>